AEC Business, the construction industry's innovation and technology show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the AEC Business Podcast. My name is Arnie Heiskanen and my guest is from the USA and he is Mark Ehrlich. On the podcast and on my blog, I typically talk about uh, AEC innovation and technology, but this time we are going to discuss the future of construction of the construction worker. And Mark recently authored a book titled The Way We Build, Restoring Dignity to Construction Work. And after reading the book, which I found really interesting, I decided to interview Mark. And so here he is. And uh, thanks for joining uh, our podcast. Well, it's my pleasure. So um, you have also been in the industry for quite some time. Can you give us a little um, introduction of yourself and your background and what inspired you to write right the uh, the way we built so um i actually worked in the field as a carpenter i was an apprentice and i was a journeyman i was a foreman and superintendent and in the union sector in boston and then i um decided to run for office in my union back in 1992 and much to my surprise and everyone else's surprise i won and i became the head of the local for a number of years and then the union was reorganized into regional councils and i Another uh, election in 2005, I was elected to run the 25,000 member um, organization. So I have a background in the trade and in union leadership. I uh, was the head of the uh, New England Council for um, 12 years. I retired in 2017, but I'm also a writer. I've written three books, uh, dozens of articles and op-eds about the industry, about labor issues in general. And for the last uh, number of years, I've been a fellow at the uh, Harvard Law School Center for Labor and a Just Economy, which allows me to kind of uh, think and teach and write about um, my experiences in the industry. And so you decided to write, is this this is the your latest book, The Way We Build? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, the, the other two books um, were also about labor issues and, and labor history. One was about politics. Um, but this one is sort of a, <laughs> I guess, a regurgitation of all of the things that I saw and learned over my 50 years. And I felt like I got a degree in constructionology in my, in my experience in, uh, in, in leadership of the union and participation in the industry. So um, it's an attempt to describe how work has the past, present, and future of construction work in the U.S. um, going from a a long extended period of time from the late 19th century up to 1970 when the bulk of the work in this country was done on a union basis um, and the unions were very strong and then starting in the 1970s, the uh, decline of unions um, and we now today sort of have a bifurcated uh, uh, system in the United States where we have certain areas in the north, north, northeast, Midwest, and West Coast that are still union strongholds and people get paid well, people get good benefits, the conditions are safe. And then we have a whole swath of the country in the south, the southwest, the Rocky Mountain states, and in outside of major metropolitan areas where it's characterized by non-union construction, lower wages, um, few if no any benefits, um, wage theft periodically, and um, 
uh, a and declining safety standards. So it's a it's an odd time in the United States. Um, it's sort of there's kind of it's it's been a equilibrium in, uh, of that bifurcation for a number of years now. And, and part of the purpose of the book was to suggest a way for the unions to kind of rebuild and to reestablish standards in the industry. That was really um, fascinating and, and kind of sad also to read <laughs> what has happened. Uh, so your point of view is very much in the USA, but I think many trends that you talk about are universal and maybe, uh, but, but what is, What's the construction worker of today like? Um, what are the what are what are their aspirations and challenges? Well, it, you're right. It, it, many of the themes in the book are universal. Um, while the book, while my knowledge is really about the U.S., I've read about the industry in other countries, and you know, um, globalization and outsourcing doesn't really happen in construction. They haven't figured out yet how to build a building in Bangladesh and drop it in Helsinki. Um, that uh, so that what has happened instead is the globalization of the labor force with the uh, with migrant workers from and in different parts of the world. Uh, it it plays out differently depending on the countries of origin. In the U.S., it's mostly workers from uh, Mexico, Central America, and South America who have come north looking for better conditions, and who are often the term we use here is undocumented. They're here without papers. They're here illegally. And they're, as a result, vulnerable to the kind of exploitation by um, uh, contractors that uh, that are unscrupulous uh, in their labor practices. And that it now characterizes, that's the fastest growing portion of the workforce. I mean, in, 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 in Europe, I, and there's sort of a spectrum around the world, I think. I think Scandinavia, I think Finland in general is a much more highly unionized city. The unions have maintained a uh, grasp on on the on the industry in a way, and then you've got parts of the world where the unions don't exist at all, and the entire workforce is is migrant, whether it's in the Middle East, Middle East, or parts of Africa. But the issue is the same everywhere, which is that the production of construction has not been outsourced and globalized, and, and globalized but the workforce has been. So you have uh, an influx of workers from Uh, uh, countries where conditions are poor, working in an industry where wages have typically been relatively high, and the standards are brought down by, uh, I would say again, irresponsible employers taking advantage of people's work of and uh, desperation for for work. Yeah, I think we have uh, also here in Finland faced the the, the influx of, uh, of workers from other countries mainly because there is a lack of uh, skilled labor. Maybe that's, yeah. So uh, I think that's a universal problem. And of course, we here in Finland, we, we very much try to keep the standard high. So everybody is on this, has the same benefits and so on. So, but I understand that it's, it's, a, it's a struggle in many countries and, and not e even easy here, here in Finland. But how did we get, how did, how did you get the, there? Uh, what, what, what is the history behind this, uh, this uh, development? Well, it's kind of a fascinating history. And again, I think that uh, the book goes into a great deal of detail. Uh, and I think in some ways there are parallels in other uh, part in Western Europe and other parts of the world as well. Um, when we moved from a 
period of sort of 19, the post-World War II era of a sort of social contract between labor and, and business of kind of accepting unionism as a, you know, not the companies weren't necessarily thrilled, but they accepted it as that was the uh, way business should be done. Productivity gains were shared. And then in the 70s and 80s, and this was true all around the world, but I think uh, led it by the United States, where there was a shift in the ideology and the philosophy in the business community to, uh, to um, uh, deal with, you know, competitiveness was the term of art that basically justified a sense of breaking down responsibility for the workforce. There's a, a, a really good book by a fellow named David Weil about the fissuring of the economy in which companies essentially shed responsibility for uh, managing their workforce. Um, and that happened in construction, which was already a an industry based on sort of decentralization and subcontracting so that it was very simple to kind of just extend the world of subcontracting into more and more lower, lower tiers of subcontractors who often in, in our situation have ended up really lowering standards dramatically, uh, taking advantage of undocumented workers and, uh, and operating a, a highly uh, unsafe uh, construction project. So again, today, I think it's bifurcated that you have Boston is a strong union city where I live, um, and construction workers here typically make a good living. Um, they they good health and retirement benefits. We don't have universal health care the way you do, so health insurance is, is comes through employment, um, and uh, and the jobs are safe. Uh, I mean, it, over my, the fifty years of my career, I've seen a, a remarkable. <laughs> improvement in safety conditions on, on well-run jobs. So, but then, but then there's a, this whole other environment and, and it's a, there's a tension there. And it, like, a, as I said earlier, it's sort of an equilibrium. Now there's some parts of the country that operate with one business model and there are other parts that operate with another business model. And to some degree that is, I don't know if stabilized is the correct word, but it's, there's sort of a, there, there is an equilibrium that has been reached, but you know, I, um, I am, so that when you talk about shortage of skilled labor and workers coming from other countries, I mean, we have a situation where in certain parts of the country, um, uh, it is no longer, it used to be, construction used to be for many years, a very attractive industry to work in. Um, you had a sense of fulfillment, uh, both sort of economically and psychologically, because you were building something and at the end of the day, you could see what you had done. You weren't just shuffling papers, and and the pay was good. And and in the United States, and I think this is somewhat different from other parts of the country, building trades workers were known as labor aristocrats, and that was the the pay was higher than uh, ma manufacturing workers. The pay was higher than many white collar professions, uh, and it was a, <laughs> and that term was sort of both sarcastic. But also envious uh, because it, it referred to the um, uh, the higher level of compensation that that construction workers achieve. That um, is no longer the case again because of this bifurcation of the industry. So that in the United States, you actually have, if you aggregate the entire industry since the 1970s, total uh, uh, income has actually declined by 15 percent or so. 
in the industry. And so some of that in the union sectors, the wages have continued to go kind of keep pace with inflation. So that means that in the non-new sector, it's gone down that much more dramatically in order to get a total of 15%. So um, I, you know, I worry about the kind of integrity of the industry going forward. There's all sorts of challenges about technology and innovation and how that's going to change uh, the nature of work. And certainly, you know, we can talk about de-skilling and, and, and all, of, uh, all of those issues. But from my perspective, it's simply an industry that was a pathway into the middle class and was a source of great pride has really been kind of uh, uh, damaged um, and, and, and it needs to be, that needs to be restored. That level of dignity needs to be restored again. Yeah, you talk about misclassifications. Yeah. So, in in other words, uh, some workers, uh, the imp uh, employers, uh, see that some workers can be actually entrepreneurs, <laughs> <laughs> one man man uh, companies, taking care of all the all the responsibilities of an employer, which sounds really uh, weird, but <laughs> that's 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 happening. Yeah, it, it's it's a scam. I mean, I, let's just put it very simply. Uh, you know, in Europe, you're very familiar with the issue of independent contracting and misclassification, it, mostly around gig, gig economy jobs. And uh, Uber and Lyft drivers really independent contractors? Are they employees? And all of the debate that's been going over that. This is something that happened long before the gig employers emerged. This is something that happened first in construction back in the 70s and 80s. And I remember my personal experience of very. I, I when I when I was a newly elected head of my local union, I was would walk on non-union jobs and I would talk to um, non-union carpenters and ask them how you know things were going. And I remember talking to one guy, and uh, it was a Monday, and he says, you know, this funny thing happened. He says on Friday, I was an employee of the company getting uh, paychecks, and on Monday, I'm an independent contractor. I'm doing exactly the same thing. And at, at that time, this was back in the 90s, I had no idea what he was talking about. And, it, and, I, and I said, well, is anything different? He said, no, no, I'm getting the same amount of money. Um, so what I learned was that this was part of a process that had been going on in the construction industry for years. It had newly arrived up in New England. Um, and what it did was that it saved the employer roughly 30% in labor costs. And as you know, Construction is a highly competitive industry, and basically it's materials and labor, and materials are pretty much the same for everybody. So if you can save 30% labor costs, you suddenly gain this enormous competitive advantage. And it began to sweep the, and, and everybody in the industry knew that it was a scam, because obviously someone who shows up at work and the foreman tells them what to do for the day and where to go work and, you know, what, uh, what uh, until the day is over, that's not an independent contractor. That's an employee, and uh, their function and their function never changed. It's simply the accounting procedures of the employers change. So then, what happened? This was seventies, eighties, nineties began to happen more and more. And there were consultants who would go around the country and they would tell construction employers how to, you know, take advantage of this uh, this system. And then, with the influx of um, immigrant workers, particularly from south of the border. Uh, the employers who were doing that just said, forget it. I'm not going to go through all the paperwork with independent contracting. I'm just going to pay them in cash. And so now that sort of, so misclassification 
morph into a cash underground economy system that has, you know, that's not just someone building, you know, your aunt's deck down the street. This is, we're talking about multi, multi-million dollar projects where if someone gets hurt and the safety inspector shows up and they say, who does, who did he work for? Everybody goes, I don't know, you know, because it's become, it's become this sort of their, what we, uh, what we call labor brokers um, have become the sort of hiring hall of this, uh, this kind of underground economy world where in their smartphones, they have dozens or even hundreds of names of workers who they can move from job to job and everybody gets paid in cash off the books. Nobody knows what's going on. Impossible to regulate because there's no paper trail for regulators, even if they wanted to, to, to pursue. So it's, um, it is, um, that's when I talk about restoring dignity, the very first thing I mean is employers should just simply play by the rules and life would be better. By the way, um, I, I, um, I checked uh, from the U.S. Department of Labor uh, report, latest report from 23, that the uh, union density was 16.3%. <laughs> it's really low. Yes. Yeah. So in comparison here in Finland, it's about 70. So yeah, no, <laughs> I, I, I envy uh, Scandinavian Finland and, and the Scandinavian countries for their commitment to maintaining uh, standards. The density is a, is a little bit, um, uh, I would not say that's the best measure of union. Basically density means anybody who calls themselves a carpenter or a bricklayer or electrician, um, is part of that universe. And so that includes people who do it occasionally. That includes people who, you know, are not really, don't have full-time careers in the industry. So in some ways, the better, the term that we, that I like to use is more market share, which is what percentage of a given market is the work performed uh, on a union basis and what is it on a non-union basis. And there the numbers are so like in, 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 and that uh, that obviously tilts if you're measuring that in dollar volume um, or euro volume, uh, whichever. That tilts towards the union side because the bigger projects tend to be more union because they have more complex demand for labor, both in terms of skill and numbers. Uh, so that we used to track that uh, on a on an annual basis uh, in in our industry in the. In the Carpenter sec- sector of the industry, and in the Boston metropolitan area, it was between eighty and ninety percent union. The market share was the smaller jobs, residential work was typically done non non union, but all the big commercial and institutional work was done on a union basis. But you go again to the south, uh, and it's about one or two or three or four percent. I mean, maybe maybe power plants are done union. Everything else is pretty much done non union. So. I, I find market share to be actually a more useful understanding of influence and, and power than, than density. But regardless, if you look at trends, trend lines, then the density has become, you know, dramatic. Uh, but as you mentioned, uh, the industry is very uh, competitive and uh, con- construction companies struggle with costs and profitability. But are there other ways to, let's say, more humane ways to improve performance without uh, resorting to these questionable practices? Yeah, you know, the, 
I mean, there is this sort of uh, uh, conventional wisdom, especially among the kind of high tech folks, that construction is a dinosaur industry. You know, it's uh, lost in the 20th or even 19th century. And while productivity gains and automation and robotics and innovation have happened in manufacturing and other industries, never come to construction. There's some truth to that, but there's also just anecdotally, and I'm sure you've, you've seen this as well, um, it's a, if you're looking at a high rise in, in downtown Helsinki or, or, or downtown Boston or San Francisco or Chicago or anywhere, it takes far fewer tradespeople today to build that building than it did 20 years ago. I mean, the, there, the means and methods have, even in conventional on-site construction, have, uh, I believe, have actually changed dramatically. It's a very difficult, productivity is a very difficult thing to measure in construction um, because it's not like a factory where everything is the same. Everything is different, and, and, and all of the various metrics that I've seen are really not that satisfying. The other thing that I would say is happening is that the work has become much more specialized so that um, it used to be when I started in the industry, which was a very long time ago, uh, it used to be that there was sort of a, uh, uh, it, it was good to be a generalist as a carpenter or as a tradesperson to know all aspects of your trade. And increasingly, the way the uh, industry is organized is through subcontracting and specialized, you know, just doing ceilings, just doing foundations, just doing um, interior systems, just doing uh, telecom electrical as opposed to power electrical. All of the uh, pieces of the various trades have sort of been uh, broken into specialties and uh, so that people can be much more productive and do the same thing over and over and over and over again. Um, so you see that. And then the other thing I think you're seeing, I'm sort of, a, uh, I think your experience in, in Europe is different, but in this country, I'm somewhat of a modular skeptic. I don't really think the modular sector of the industry is has really uh, taken off or is going to take off, even though there are a lot of people who, are there, I mean, there's a lot of sort of rhetoric about that being the way of the future. But certainly prefabrication is um, uh, offsite prefabrication where wall systems, roof systems, flooring systems uh, are being done uh, either in a conventional factory or sort of a makeshift factory and then transported to the job and installed. So that I think Trades workers have moved from becoming fabricators to becoming installers of, of elements of components of a job that are being fabricated offsite. And I think that is a process that is inevitable and will continue. Mm -hmm. And we also have a lot of digital technologies nowadays, uh, even on, on the on the job side. So. How do you see that technology, especially these digital digital tools and 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 uh, what equipment that we have? How, how do you see them their role in the in the future? Well, if you walk into an auto plant, as I have and you probably have as well, and 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 look at some of these robots that you know six arms, six axis, and the pieces of the car come. To the, they're, they're, they have a permanent station and the, and the material components come to them and they get welded or whatever the, the robot is going to do and then they move on to the next station. You can't do that in construction. And robots really, while, I mean, while there are kind of uh, novelty robots in various aspects of construction, 
you know, the terrain is uneven. You have to uh, go up the multiple floors so that you have to have mobile robots that are as complicated to just simply move from location to location and set them up. And by the time you've done that, if a human being had done the work, they'd be already done. So I, I don't think, you know, a robotics is really gonna come to the site to the degree things are done offsite, you know, then that's where you're gonna see the introduction of automation and robotics. Um, uh, you're seeing drones on jobs doing various things, just ranging from just kind of uh, checking on, on the quality of, of the work that was done over the course of a day, uh, you know, saving people uh, trouble. And you're seeing, and you know this as an architect, you're also seeing a, a lot of changes on the design level up through uh, BIM, um, uh, building information modeling, where people kind of build a building virtually first and then build it in practice, and there are far fewer mistakes and all of the various uh, um, potential conflicts between the, the different parts of the design can be ironed out in advance. So I think I think of the industry evolving in a kind of evolutionary way as opposed to a disruptive, um, uh, transformational kind of way. Ed. And I, I think that many people who sort of scoff at the, um, at the nature of the industry are, really underestimate the amount of changes that are happening on an incremental basis. So from the point, from the point of view of the worker, I think you're going to have uh, less, um, except for things like renovation or maintenance, you're going to have someone who's less uh, uh, of a generalist and more of a specialist. You're going to have someone who's less of a fabricator and more of an installer. And so I think that sense of de-skilling, in some ways, you know, but it's a little bit unfortunate. I I am old enough to sort of have been part of the industry when really the tradespeople did a lot of the um, uh, the brain power of the work as well as the physical uh, uh, aspects. And I think you know increasingly that will be taken away and it will become a more routine kind of industry. But um, I think it's still a great way to make a living uh, and. Uh, um, I, you know, I think with, in Finland, where you've got 70% union density, not only is it a great way to make it, they, they, uh, in my book, I don't know if you remember, in 1954, there was a study done on the meaning of work and how satisfied people would work. And there was a, they took five occupational groups, uh, tradesmen, uh, steel workers, coal miners, salesmen, and, and physicians, doctors, and tradesmen had the highest degree of satisfaction because they felt like they were like they were creating something with their hands that was lasting and and uh, and they were also compensated fairly for it. So I you know I I think those days in some ways are gone uh, but I think that there are still elements of the trade that provide a kind of satisfaction that is not necessarily available on a lot of other blue collar jobs. But what do we need to do to restore dignity to construction work? Well, I think, it, and, and when you say we in Finland, I don't. I think it's less of an issue than it is for. Uh, um, first of all, I think we need to just bring uh, the workforce out of the shadows of the underground economy. I think uh, the industry needs to be regulated so that people play by the rules that everybody's an employee because they are, are in fact, function as employees, and they get the benefits. In the United States. 
all of the uh, protections that workers have fought for for over 100 years only come with the status of being an employee. If you're an independent contractor, you have absolutely no uh, protections in terms of minimum wage, hours of work, or all of the various things that are that uh, the federal and state governments uh, uh, offer. So I think that the minimum is simply to get the industry back to playing by the rules and treating workers as employees. And then because I'm a union person and a union advocate, I believe that the unions need to um, uh, go through their own transformation and be organized, focus on organizing and welcoming the, the new workforce, which means dealing with cultural issues, language issues. Um, it has historically in the United States been a white male industry and the issue of the exclusion of people of color and women. Uh, you know, it, it's, not, it's not like it was when I first got in the industry. It's much, much, much better. And when I was a, a leader of the Carpenters Union, that was a huge uh, uh, issue for me to try to transform the, uh, the the demographics of the membership. So I think all of I think the unions need to sort of become 21st century organizations. Some of them are still slow to change, uh, but I think if when if and when that happens, then you can sort of kind of uh, have a an industry that people can feel proud to be part of and can go to work in the morning and come home at night safely because the conditions are safe and know that they helped build something for their communities and their society. And that's a, that's a source of great pride. We should now mention where, where if, if any of our listeners would like to know more and, and uh, read your book, actually. So where, where can they get it? <laughs> um, you can get it from all the sort of standard uh, uh, venues. Um, you know, Amazon has it. Um, probably the best way to get it, the book is published by the University of Illinois Press, and they have their own website, and anyone who's interested can go on the website and, and search for my name and the name of the book, and you'll get it there. And um, uh, uh, I would prefer to support the press than support Amazon, but um, in any case, uh, you, you can get the book in. Uh, I mean, those are the two main ways to do it. Uh, uh, I doubt if it's a bestseller in, in fin Finnish bookstores, so probably online is the best way to get it. They haven't offered to make a movie out of it yet, so. <laughs> yeah, but we'll, we, I'll, I'll include the link uh, in, in the show notes, of course. Okay. And, and how can our listeners contact you if they want to learn more or have, have some discussion with, personally with you? Um, I am happy to talk to anybody on uh, at any time on the uh, uh, about any of the issues raised in the book or the industry in general. Uh, my email address is m Ehrlich m e r l i c h at law edu. And anybody who wants to reach me can email me, and I'd be delighted to uh, respond. I, I thank you for the interview and. I hope your book impacts the discussion of the future of construction work and workers. Well, thank you. Thank you, Arnie, for doing this. Uh, and um, I'm hopeful it's gotten, a, it's gotten a good response so far. Not so much because the book is so great, but actually it fills a vacuum. There aren't that many books written about uh, the, the nature of labor relations or construction work. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that people will find it useful. Thanks for listening. 
Subscribe to this podcast and visit aec-business.com, the award-winning blog, for more news and stories.